0: Hi folks, a little bit of housekeeping as usual before we start the podcast. This is Rory's conversation with Michael Taft, Tricia Keelty and Louise Baylis on a deep dive analysis into the budget and unfortunately the uh, growing inequality and deprivation levels that are baked into it. Uh, but it's really, really important that we lay this out in such a great way and we're very blessed to continually get this, uh, these uh, wonderful contributors if you are a patron, it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. You should not be listening to these, please. You get the you get the podcast as quickly as we turn them around in one consolidated feed. If you're not, this week alone you've missed out on a brilliant conversation with Colombian journalist Nicholas Dale Leal on the war on drugs and what is happening in Colombia. You'll have heard from Jed Nash in the Labour Party on a Ireland that works for all. Episode 7 of Shrapnel Dropped uh, with Craig Murray and getting more great reviews from our listeners and supporters. Plus, there's access to over 1,050 of our back catalogue now. Uh, all available in the one place at patreon.com forward slash I don't like having to ask, but we do need your support. If you can, please put your hand in your pocket and help keep this show on the road. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for liking. And uh, congratulations to Rory on the launch of his new book, Gaffs. Get that in bookstores now, preferably independent bookstores. Always go with the independent bookstores if you can, folks. Thanks very much and enjoy this podcast.
1: Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and today we are analysing the budget, um, what happened, was it the best ever, ever, ever budget, um, and I'm delighted to be joined back on the podcast by uh, Michael Taft, economist with SIP2, and um, Dr. Tricia Keelty, um, who is policy, head of policy with uh, St. Vincent de Paul, and um, also uh, hopefully by Louise Bayliss as well. Um And just, yeah, I, th- I think there's a, a lot of people really very impressed with how the government uh, made use of all of its funding available and poured it into addressing inequalities um in society. Well, that's what you might think from um, the mainstream media analysis, uh, which really lacked a lot of depth. Um, and while there was some spaces for critical voices, it really, I think, missed the the, the sense of what was possible in that budget and what was necessary. And um, we were hoped to be joined as well by the great um, Tom McDonald of Neary, but unfortunately he couldn't make it. Um, so he did send over some of his thoughts, which I'm going to read out to get us started before I go to Michael um, and Tricia. Um, he said his analysis is that the minimum wage increase will barely exceed inflation in 2023. And the last two minimum wage increases amount to a wage cut in real terms over the 2022 to 2023 period. So that's on the minimum wage um, increase on welfare payments. He points out, uh, as I know that Tricia will highlight, also uh, welfare payments were not indexed to inflation and so will fall in real terms in 2023. And once off payments will not help low income households in 2023. And as a result, we're likely to see a rise in deprivation rates. And this is particularly striking, he notes, given that the government indexed the income tax threshold and included those households in what he calls the wasteful and untargeted energy credit. And middle and higher earners have effectively been insulated against the cost of living pressures. And why, he asks, which I think is a really important question, why were low pay and fixed income households not similarly protected? And these groups, he notes, will face a cumulative inflation of at least 15.5%, which is a phenomenal figure over this year and next. And it is beyond time that we brought in benchmarking for the welfare system. He also makes the point, uh, which has become a very uh, bit of a political football, despite the huge work that went into it, is the issue of Commission on Tax and Welfare. He says the government continues to foolishly narrow the tax base against the advice of the Commission on Tax and Welfare. And this undermines public services and and, un, and is unaffordable long-term. And retention of the help-to-buy tax break, he notes, is unfortunate. But it is welcome that the 9% VAT um on hospitality is being ended. And there are positive things, he notes. The intervention on the cost of childcare is extremely welcome. So listen, Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to send in your thoughts on it. Um, and we'll have you back again soon. I might go to Tricia first. Tricia, if you want to just give us your analysis um of the budget, both, I suppose, the positives. And um, that it was the best ever, ever, ever budget, and um, the downsides that what it didn't do or should have done, if you don't mind. Yeah,
2: I suppose at first glance, it looks quite generous in terms of the lump sum payments to people on disability allowance, cares allowance, working family payment of around four, 500 euro. You're going to have a double welfare payment as well um, in October and then again yeah. at Christmas. So for most people, that would maybe just one bill sorted. And mm. by the time January comes around, People will be back to the same point in terms of the struggle with the cost of living. Because, yeah. as Tom pointed out, the social welfare increase of 12 euro is well below what was needed. We needed 20 euro at a minimum to keep people standing still. And remember that standing still in poverty. Um, so, really, you know, that's going to be that's totally inadequate. Um, and we're really concerned what 2023 will bring, because when you strip away all those non-sum payments which will be absorbed in the next two or three months. Um, The budget as it stands in terms of welfare in in and of itself is um, not going to be enough at all. Um, And particularly we're so disappointed in the increase for children in the poorest households of just €2 a week for children over and under 12 in terms of the qualified child payment. That is totally inadequate. We needed at least €12 for children over 12 um, and seven euro for children under 12 so child poverty is going to grow children in those households are going to go without basics more regularly um, and we're really concerned about that There is also limited
1: off the top of your head Trishy, don't uh, put you on the spot you don't know how many people are in receipt of that do you that payment
2: i don't have that off the t- i think it's in in the region of three hundred and fifty thousand children but i'd have to double check that but yeah, you know it's a significant it is a really-
1: number but the the point being that that um that i think is important to make is there's this, a significant number of people require it and rely on it and in terms of addressing what you've highlighted and we've highlighted over and over is that issue of our very high rates of child deprivation um in this country continuing despite the economic growth that yeah that is a really disappointing one
2: yeah, um, and really worrying, you know, for for households as well. I just there's no real certainty because, as I said, the the lump sum payments will be absorbed really quickly. Then people will be back to worrying um, and more even more again in in the yeah. new year. And that could uh, have been
1: a targeted, a very
2: targeted measure. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's reaching the children who are most. poverty, And also the core social welfare rate is also really important because you can't address poverty, child poverty, if you're not addressing the poverty of parents um, and the household as as a whole. Um, And there was a lot of talk of whether increasing core social welfare rates is a targeted measure or not. Of course, it's a targeted measure. You're getting income into the bottom 20% of uh, the population, the bottom income deciles. Um, so really, you know, not doing that is just means people are going to fall further behind. We're going to see a rise in poverty. Um, and I can't I'd say the government will end up having to intervene again um, in the new year um, because of these inadequate increases. But I suppose on the positive front, they did make significant changes to the working family payment in terms of the threshold. they have going up 40 euro, um, which make a difference to those in receipt of that. Um, and then the big, you know, long-term win that a lot of organizations have been pushing for is around school books and mm. um, will be made free from, from, from September time onwards. And there, again, there was a lot of support for third level students as well. Um, again, uh, most of it in one-off measures, um, but some changes in terms of the student contribution and also the Susie Grant that, that we would welcome.
1: Yeah. Michael, thanks for that, Tricia. Um, and uh, we'll come back to you in terms of analysis of of where we're going now and what are we likely to see um and I think importantly the, the i think both the social and political implications of where we're heading to um over the coming months. Michael um your analysis of it
3: i think I would start uh, uh at two in, uh, uh, at two projections that the government made which have not been uh part of the public debate so far. And in fact, they, they've skimmed over it quite uh, neatly in the uh, ministerial speeches yesterday. First off, next year, we are essentially going to have a stagnating economy. Real economic growth will grow by 0.4%, which is essentially zero and not very far away from recession territory. We have a situation where a recession uh, is just a little bit behind standing behind the budget. Uh, that was not referenced at all. In fact, the Minister for Finance, I thought, quite cynically, used another measurement for next year, which no one really knows anything about. It's called modified domestic demand. I mean, we have all these friggin' measurements. Uh, but the real measurement is that we will essentially be flatlining. And we could be heading into a recession, if it's even just a fractional difference. Secondly, the, seven, the, the government projected inflation at 8.5% this year. The consensus was for next year, and this is a consensus between Central Bank, ESRI, Department of Finance, NERI, and all that, was somewhere between 4 and 45 and, and then they announced it was going to be a 7% inflation rate. No one was inspect, expecting that. That means that um, over the two years, inflation will run at 16.2%. And in terms of the social constituencies that Tricia was uh, referencing, it's going to be higher because the CSO has already told us that it's a higher inflation rate for lower income uh, households. Yeah. So you've got a stagnating economy and you have uh, a 16% inflation rate over two years. Uh, That, you know, that could go badly wrong. Now, department of finance is projecting that we'll bounce back in 2024 Hopefully we will. But the fact is that in this kind of crisis that we're having now, it's very difficult to project beyond 6, 12, 18 months at a stretch. So, you know, I think that the bounce back is more in hope than uh, anything else. And regarding, the, so therefore, looking at the once-off measures, it's about 1.2 billion euros in once-off measures that are being proposed. But a lot of that is going to do the, undo the damage that was done this year. Because I think social protection rates went up by, uh, Tricia would know there's like 2.2, 2.5%, five euros last year, 2.5% inflation running in eight and a half percent. There was very little cover except in electricity credit, very little cover for that. So that money, that once off money that we paid this year, that's undoing the damage of this year. What about the damage that will be done next year, especially as social protection payments are well below the rate of inflation. And as Tom rightly pointed out, inflation is going to wipe out uh, minimum wage increase, Uh, pretty effectively wipe it out. Uh, And minimum wage workers have lost ground this year, and they lost ground last year. So, uh, uh, you know, it, it may turn out all right on the day, but a lot of people are going to suffer. And if it doesn't turn out all right, then you know we're going to be into in into more issues like rising poverty, rising deprivation, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it is interesting in terms of that and important to look at that kind of wider question of the economy um, and within the context through which you know the we raise the the, the income and, and wealth to you know redistribute, but it's the, the wider context, I think the role of the state in supporting the economy, there's often this narrow view of it, which is, you know, income supports or even income supports for business and a real lack of appreciation of its role in supporting the economy over uh, on a more sustainable level through investment, infrastructure investment. And I was quite struck looking at it from a macro point of view, uh, Michael, that this uh, allocation uh, this year of a $2 billion into a rainy day fund and 4 billion next year um, into a rainy day fund. When, as people, you know, make the point, particularly we look at, you know, renters, those, you know, the 350,000 adults, uh, 450,000, should I say, adults living at home with their parents that, you know, and people suffering now from the cost of living, that there are areas like housing in particular and childcare as well um, and health that you could invest in that would actually sustain. Create employment, and particularly the idea around creating a state construction company. That, why in God's name are we putting money into a rainy day fund when it is literally the storm right now?
3: Well, I think there's um, uh, the biggest reason is that if we want to congratulate anybody for whatever largesse there has been in this budget, and it has been, it's been nearly 11 billion euros. uh, It's not about uh, thanking the state or the exchequer or the minister for finance, it's about thanking about 10 multinational companies. Because mm. the fact is that we are getting to a stage where we as reliant upon multinational corporate tax receipts and revenue commissioners identified that uh, you know 80% of that is from 10 companies. We can kind of guess who they are. Uh, we're getting to a stage of that over-reliance that we had on uh, property speculation. Revenue prior to the crash. Now it may not unwind in a a, as bad a way as the property uh, crash occurred, but I think there is rightfully a nervousness about how much money we're receiving from uh, the multinational corporate sector. And might I say uh, that's one of the silver linings of being a tax haven. You get a lot of. You get a lot of money from, uh, you know, the corporate sector. So, you know, I mean, uh, uh, that is one of the reasons. Now, the issue is not whether you try to decouple our reliance on, you know, what they call excessive profits from the multinational sector. The issue is what you do with it. Now, let's take that money. Let's say two billion euros this year, two billion euros next year. That is a great start for actually um, uh, uh, creating new uh, green assets, which we would struggle otherwise because we have so many other demands uh, uh, to invest in. In other words, don't just use that to kind of be there when things go south, because you're still relying on corporate fund, You're growing corporate taxes. Why don't we take that money, invest it into green technology, new renewable plants, Pilot projects on tidal and wave battery storage retrofitting. In other words, to use that to to really to to have the ability uh, to create a resilient economy going forward in the issue of climate change. So it's not so much that they're taking that money away; it's that what can we do with it? And by the way, when you start investing in it, when you start investing in these green things, you are promoting economic growth, sustainable economic growth. You're creating jobs. You're increasing wages. You're doing a lot of good things, and you are benefiting those on low incomes, especially if you target retrofitting uh, first off at uh, uh, at the low income uh, uh, at low income uh, constituencies, and they will reap the benefit by having a nicer environment to which to live in, uh, and secondly, uh, lower energy costs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Tricia, I don't know if you want to come in there on firstly, maybe the retrofitting targets. And because I know that's something that is vitally important in terms of creating warmer homes and addressing the cost of living. And I don't know, have you uh, a view on that in terms of what was allocated?
2: Yeah, I suppose they've added more uh, funding towards the warmer home scheme, which is a pretty much a free upgrade for people in receipt of certain social welfare payments and who own their own home. Um, And that's obviously welcome. But the problem is there's actually a massive waiting list for it because there's a huge backlog in terms of actually doing the retrofits. So for people struggling with their energy bills right now who do need upgrades, um, it's going to be a long time before they actually feel the benefit of that. I think really on the social housing stock, this is always just something that we really think needs to be expedited in terms of. The state's own properties in terms of upgrading them to ensure people are well insulated in, in those homes and the borough ratings are high and that people can reduce their costs the big gap and this has always been the gap is for private renters yeah because there's no um options really there if you're if you, uh, to have an upgrade because landlords don't reap the benefit of it in terms of lower energy bills Um, And there's no incentives there for for them. And then for tenants, obviously, there's no incentives as well if you're paying massive rents and then trying to, to upgrade your home. So there is a commitment in housing for all to have a strategy to improve the energy efficiency within the private rented sector. And with Threshold, we published a report last year which set out how they could do that in a way that wouldn't have the unintended consequences of increasing rents or um, getting people evicted and things like that. So there is options, but I think it seems to be something that's been put on on the long finger. I think in terms of the energy poverty issue more generally and what the budget delivered, it really is very inadequate. So there's actually no increase in the fuel allowance. There's lump sum payments, but they haven't committed to increasing the fuel allowance payment on a weekly basis, on a permanent basis. That's what's needed. Um, Obviously, the lump sums will help. They have increased the thresholds for the fuel allowance, which will mean more older people who are on on lower incomes will qualify, which is obviously really important. But what we were calling for was that it would be extended to people in receipt of the working family payment. So again, that would be a child poverty measure. It would be an energy poverty measure. um, But unfortunately, they, they didn't do that. Um, And the energy credit, €600, is going to be absorbed so quickly because more price rises are coming, um, there's no doubt. It would have been better to maybe tackle the issue of standing charges. The fact that energy companies are increasing standing charges at this time is totally unjustifiable. Um, And that impacts people on low incomes more because if they were increasing the unit rate, That impacts people who are high energy users who are usually a higher income. But if you're a low energy user um, and on lower income, which you usually would be, those standing charges disproportionately impact you. So they're very regressive. So tackling that by government would have been uh, another way that they could have targeted um, support if they are not going to go for kind of any more wider price controls, but at least get them to stop doing that.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting. I'll come back and I'm going to ask Michael in a minute just on that specifically, the energy, the discussion about should they have put a cap on energy prices rather than um, the one-off measures and what you think should should have been done and obviously could still be done. Um, it, Trisha, before I go to Michael, just a question on the, the renters which you raised and um, what did you think of the tax credit and what that means for renters and also the issue of the HAP, that the, the HAP payment limits weren't changed?
2: Yeah, so, uh, the rent the rent credit obviously is is welcome, but, you know, it's a small amount. It could be absorbed very quickly in a rent increase without any controls there in terms of um, what landlords can do. Um, it doesn't apply to people in our seat of HAP. Um, and then the, the HAP limits did increase, you know, earlier this year. But again, the limits aren't the discretionary uplift, should I say, increased rather than the limits. Um, and again, the top ups, again, are going to become an issue. What we really wanted to see was more investment in homeless prevention, keeping people in their homes, particularly in the private rented sector. The budget there is already totally inadequate. There doesn't seem to be any additional funding there. Rent arrears are going to start creeping up. Um, and I know like we need to be thinking about putting an eviction ban back on the table really this winter um, because there's such a, um, so much worry uh, out there for people who are worried about their ability to pay their rent not having any support in terms of addressing rent arrears if they have no other income uh, sources to deal with that um, and the impact that will have on people at risk of homelessness as well is a huge concern.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, I agree completely. The eviction ban, you know, it should be and can still be done um, and should be. Um, just on that, um, the question of, you you referenced there that the tax credit will not be available to people who are in receipt of HAP.
2: Yes, that's
3: right. That's what
1: my understanding is. That seems a bit That's right. Fair. And the
3: the tax credit will, of course, not be available to anybody whose income is below the income tax threshold. Uh so there will be plenty of instances of people who are on low incomes, who might be sharing, you know, uh uh apartment or house with others, and they won't receive that because they're not in the income tax. Uh they're not paying income tax to be able to. Get Benefit from that credit. Just a question, maybe, Tricia. You know, is the rent tax credit is that um, a once-off payment this year, next year, or is that is that a permanent?
2: I understand it's only for twenty twenty two and twenty
3: twenty three. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. I wasn't aware of that as well either. It's not a it's not a permanent basis, and obviously the, the point as well that it's it's a percentage, or is it a, a total? So if you're on a lower tax. Um, band as Michael is saying, do you receive less or is that not the case?
3: It's well, uh, Tricia would probably know this better. I, if it, I had originally thought that it was going to be like at standard rate, which is what the previous rent tax credit was. However, um, it appears that it will be a full 500 euro credit across the board. Is that your understanding, Tricia? Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, so, right. no. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's five hundred across the board, yeah. Which again, as the points are made, it's only a, you know a fraction of, uh, you know, not even no one's month's rent is covered in that. It's not um it's you two know two weeks,
3: and, two weeks for the average renter in Dublin.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, two weeks for the average renter in Dublin. Um, and was there any reason given for why HAP um, those in receipt of HAP were excluded from it, Tricia? Do you know?
2: I presume it's because their rent is paid to, via the local authority. Um, in terms of the, the differential rent, but I'm not 100 percent on that either.
1: Yeah,
3: know no, Michael knows. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it, it, yeah. That would be Michael. the logic. That would be the logic that um, they're really only paying the differential rent. But uh, we know that of their income.
1: We know that a significant proportion of them are actually paying top ups.
3: Of course, of course.
1: And so, therefore, they're not just paying the differential rent. Uh, so
3: absolutely. That, that's the reality on the ground, yes.
1: That's that's the reality. And we know the figures are this was from 20, when was the last deprivation data it was from 2020, wasn't it? I think. Um it that's when it comes out, yeah, because we're a year behind. Um it came out last year, which showed that over 50% of those in receipt of HAP are in poverty after they pay their rent. Um yeah. Yeah, so that that seems to be to me an illogical one in terms of um of that um, Michael. Just that question of the energy and um the energy costs and what the government should have done on the energy uh, issue. What do you think?
3: Well, there was a surreal debate in the run up to the budget, and uh, people were uh, trying to channel uh, the Tory approach to. Uh, energy caps over there, and nobody here was suggesting that approach, which really is just a blank check to energy uh, uh, companies. Uh, But here's the point. They said that if the state took over the role of subsidizing energy companies in order to drive down prices, that it would mean the state taking on the risk of higher energy prices, you know, because if, if if companies, by the way, in many cases, they have to. Uh, they have to drive the chart, the, the, the price up because the price of natural gas, uh, whether through electricity or through just on the, off the wholesale markets, is going up. So, you know, uh, 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 so they said that the state would be taking the risk. But that's the whole point. Yes. You know, yeah. every time I heard this kind of comment, I would say, well, yes, that's the whole point. Because if the state doesn't take the risk, households and businesses take the risk. I'll give you I'll give you an idea. If electricity prices increase over the next six months at the same pace as they did over the previous six months, that 600 euros will be canceled out by February. By February. Yeah, Yeah. by February. Uh, If they actually, and it was probably never going to happen because they probably don't even have the infrastructure because governments here don't have the practice uh, for the last 30 years or so of intervening into price markets. But for instance, the state could have come in and said through the regulator, "We're now we're going to regulate these tariffs at least for a period of six months. As Tricia said, a key thing to get rid of or to drive down to the smallest minimal level is the standing charge. Uh, That represents, you know, a, a high percentage of energy costs for those on low income, low consuming households. Also, it means there's no incentive to save. I mean, I can, you know, Okay, I saved money and the, the volumetric price you know, will, will go down. Standing charge remains the same. So they could have said, I mean, what? They're averaging around 25, 30 euro a month. So, okay, for these next six months, no standing charge. That would yeah. have been a pretty effective thing. They could have also come in and said an average household uses about a little over 4,000 kilowatts an hour uh, a year. So they could have said on the first 2,000, we're going to drive down the price. And then we're going to have different bands. So that those on the high income or high income, high consuming households wouldn't get any benefit. So you would actually direct all the savings towards low and average income households. So that's what you could have done with that control. Would the state have had to pay the price? Yes. But the point is that the state can afford it. I'd also make the point an electricity credit is ultimately a subsidy to energy companies. Yeah. This the energy company sets the price and they're free, it's a free market in terms of the price they set. And then the government subsidizes households and businesses to, to pay that price. It's the same thing as HAP payments ultimately are a subsidy to private landlords. Same principle. So let's get out of this nonsense about whether the state's going to subsidize energy prices or not. Already doing that through the electricity credit. What they could have done is come in and regulate that price as I say, even as a temporary tactical measure until we get over this price crisis uh, and, you know, prices start to stabilize, hopefully sometime next year.
1: Yeah, no, no, I, I think they're very, very good ideas. And obviously they will be continued to be pushed for uh, by both the opposition um, and civil society, as we saw in the, the major protest on the weekend. Um, Tricia, just on the question of... Um, the childcare issue. Could you explain in terms of what that, or I don't know if you know the detail of it, what that is going to mean, um, in terms of moving us towards uh, public provision of childcare, or is it still is there no real change on that? Is it just uh, it's a subsidy to providers, and then they have to reduce fees because uh, what would you know the detail of it?
2: Yeah, so it would be more publicly funded. Childcare places rather than publicly provided childcare. Um, in terms of the, the way that they're kind of positioning it, yeah, um, which obviously is a, much better than the situation that we have a, at the moment. And I think the childcare package is significant. Um, our concern is for children in very disadvantaged households whose parents um, don't aren't in work or training or employment. Um, those children can't get um, access to childcare as the same as other children. So there's an inequality there that needs to be addressed because those children would benefit from early years on all the benefits that are there for children in terms of uh, early intervention and things like that. So that cohort of children was missed out in in this budget and something that the government need to move on in terms of their commitment under the EU Child Guarantee is to um, give free access to early years care and education Um, for all children in disadvantaged um, households. Um, And that's really important uh, from our point of view as well. And also ensuring that um, parents who want to move into the workforce have that support and wraparound support when they want to make that move and and are supported in advance of that as well.
1: Yeah, because, of course, the early years um, that is available, the early years services and early years childcare and early years Mm -hmm. education, is only available from um for half the day essentially for the school term week and it is not childcare um and therefore leaves people in a situation where outside of that um and outside of a, a limited number of uh schemes operating in disadvantaged areas if I'm correct, there's not like available childcare which is affordable and flexible so that people can actually take up work and it's one of the big barriers, particularly for lone parents
2: yeah exactly so the availability is a huge issue huge issue for parents in rural areas as well and it's important to remember that child minders um aren't covered under the national childcare scheme so if you use a child minder you can't avail of those additional investments
1: yeah and that one seems a very strange one because we know that there's a very in Ireland there's a very high level I don't have the figures but anecdotally I know it how uh, we we all rely on chi- or a lot of us rely on child minders and and know it is an extensive use of child minding in large part because of the flexibility issue Um, trying to cover that um Louise Baylis has just joined us uh thanks Louise and bang on time we're just discussing the issue of uh childcare um and uh, lone parents and what was done in the budget maybe from that perspective you could just give your analysis yeah um, yeah and, absolutely uh, yeah
4: so one of the things Trisha was just saying about childminders not being available for lone parents they are available to lone parents on the national child care scheme if they're registered but the reality is there's 73 registered childminders in Ireland. So you can imagine finding a childminder that's registered to the National Childcare Scheme is almost impossible. It, it is impossible, let's be honest. It's impossible. So, um, lone parents generally, and if you, the CSO in, and would back this up, lone parents are generally in work such as retail, hospitality, care work. These are all, you know, a shift work. They're not in the model of the nine to, you know, the creches operate in an eight to six. It's 8 in the morning to 6 in the evening, you know, on a Monday to Friday. So people who are in the retail hospitality doing the care work shift doing a nursing job, they're not entitled to that childcare access. So while it was great to hear the 25% reduction for fees for people who can access to it, a uh, vast cohort of lone parents aren't able to access it. Um, from the point of view of lone parents, the budget was extremely, and I'm sure Trish has gone through it in detail, but the budget was extremely frustrating. You know, if we look at it from... Um, The core rate of 12 euro is 4.5%. When we know that inflation is running at 8.5% and 7% predicted for next year, that 4.5% isn't going to go far. The 2 euro for a child is just outrageous. I mean, it's 30 cent a day. What can people buy for 30 cent a day for a child? And I think it's particularly dangerous for children who are over 12 because for children under 12, they are going to have access to free primary school. But you're talking about a lone parent with maybe a child of 15 or 16 years of age and it's being expected to live on 270 euro a week. You know, when all the one-off payments are stripped down, 270 euro a week to run a household and feed and clothe basically to adults is just not doable. Um, the other thing I would say, even the fact is that the two euro qualified child increase for people on one parent family allowance or people on job transition is so low and yet for working family payment that rate is 24 euro per week per child so there seems to be something of supporting people who are in work which is great and it's something we have asked for you know there is an awful lot of people who are in that low wage category but for 24 euro a week for people for per week per child if you're on working family payment but down to two euro per week if you're relying solely on social welfare it is a budget that's designed for people who are working and to incentivize people to work it makes no allowances for those who cannot work the other thing i would say for one of the things is that there seem to be um a real loss of income for for lone parents. So for instance, the single parent childcare was spreading, that hasn't gone up in the last two years. So in a real effect, when you look at inflation and the budget, that has gone down, the cost has gone down. Every other um tax credit was increased this budget, but but single parent carers' child credit hasn't. So it used to be the same. It was equivalised at the single rate uh, rate credit at 1,650. That's yeah. gone up now to 1,775, but the single parent credit has gone stayed at 1,650. So the real loss is, is quite big there. So that's a, a loss there. The income disregard, low parents traditionally had a higher income disregard than other groups who start work, to acknowledge the fact that we have childcare costs, and that's a huge cost if we take up work. However, that the, child, the income disregard wasn't increased for lone parents in this budget. It was increased for other groups to standardise it to lone parents, which you have to admit is quite unfair when they're not facing the childcare costs that lone parents are. And again, by, by not increasing that in the face of rising inflation, it is actually a cut on the working income. So overall, really, really... Uh, disappointing budget hidden by the pr- provision of um you know what appears to be generous um one-off payments but in reality when those go people will be struggling and I would just say the one thing that lone parents are getting is the child benefit the double ch- double child benefit in November however you've got to bear in mind as well there hasn't been a, a an increase in child benefit in the last six years. So one month double payment in the last six years is not really keeping in line with inflation either.
1: Yeah, thanks, Louise, for that. And I'm actually going to come back to you um, in terms of getting the analysis from Focus Ireland perspective on uh, housing and homelessness, because I know there are big issues there and I heard Mike Allen talking um, in terms of that. But I'm going to go to Michael first. Um, Michael, the question of, and maybe Tricia come in on this as well, the question of inequality within this budget and what impact this budget will have on inequality to me, analyzing it, particularly around the tax cut um, or the effective tax cut for those over 40,000. And when you combine what, um, you know, is there in terms of inflation versus the welfare increases being behind inflation and um, that we're, are we going to see inequality rise as a result of this or certainly not improve at any level? Um, and what, maybe you could give a sense of, you know, what's your view on that? And particularly in the context of taxes that weren't introduced um, that the Commission on Taxation proposed and Tom McDonnell um, and others, uh, you know, such as wealth taxes and that. Um, maybe you could give me your, your kind of response to that.
3: Well, just on the latter point about taxes not introduced, uh the windfall profits tax was kicked to touch uh, uh windfall profit tax for energy companies uh they're awaiting EU uh movement there might be some uh there might be some uh you know uh, legitimacy in doing that uh but nonetheless the government could have said listen if we haven't got any movement at the EU level, we're going to introduce X pro- windfall profit tax by a certain date but they've kind of kicked that to touch. In terms of what the Commission on Taxation proposed, they were never going to go towards that. Uh, Leo Varadkar said it came out of uh, Sinn Féin proposals, which showed that, one, he didn't read the Commission on Taxation proposals and he hasn't read Sinn Féin's uh, uh, pre-budget submission or election manifesto. So he's ignorant on both grounds. And indeed, one Fine Gael councillor wrote a letter to the Irish Times claiming that uh, the Commission on Taxation's proposals regarding inheritance tax was bona fide Marxism. Bona fide Marxism. Um, ah, you couldn't make this stuff up. Um, uh, the in terms of inequality, I think you're going to have a real uh, statistical war on that because the Department of Finance, as part of the budget papers, produced a what's called a distributional analysis. In other words, it shows where the money in the budget goes in terms yeah. of the lowest income decile. Uh, You know, 10 percent, the lowest 10 percent, then the next 10, then the next 10, all the way up to the top 10 percent. And they showed that it was uh, the the biggest gainers were those on the lowest deciles. And it kind of flatlined around the middle part. And you might say that's the middle. The middle part is where, you know, a lot of people work. And when I say middle at income decile, you're talking about those from minimum wage up to kind of the average wage. And then it fell off down at the very end. The problem in all these things is how you measure it. What are you mm-hmm. measuring and over what time span you're measuring? To give you an example, uh, somebody on uh, 60,000 euros, for instance, uh, uh, received about 880 euros of a tax break uh, because they got advantage of the extension of the standard rate tax ban plus the credits. Then they get the electricity credit benefit. But one thing that's rarely referenced in the debate is that those at the higher end are likely to receive pay increases. And indeed, they're likely, if they're in professional or managerial positions, they are likely to receive a higher wage increase than those on the low, uh, those in the uh, lower income, lower income brackets, lower average income brackets. So they have the advantage of not only getting these tax breaks, not only getting the electricity credit, which is a social transfer, But then they also, you know, strengthen their position in the market by getting a a wage increase. So uh, did, did the Department of Finance, you know, using the switch model or they used another kind of model, did they factor that in? So, therefore, you're going to get into the statistical war. You're not going to actually have, I mean, you mentioned the last deprivation thing that we had was 2020. So we might not know what the impact in 2023 is going to be until 2025. Yeah. So in between that it becomes a political football. Now fortunately, we do have uh, some people uh, from a, you know from the progressive si- uh, side of the fence uh, who are really good at analyzing this stuff. For instance, somebody like Karen Nugent from uh, the Nevin Economic Research Institute, who does a deep dive into a lot of this data. Uh, and kind of you know uh, subverts the the uh orthodoxy uh in terms of uh what they're claiming. but I fear that you you will be everybody will be able to pick the kind of data they have or to select the data they want to make their political point, and the real casualty will be those who are actually trying to measure the damn thing objectively, and so you're gonna have this you know. Uh, this is my stat. No, this is my stat. And just stats are going to be thrown at each other. And the public debate is no wiser.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very, very important um, point there in terms of the, the figures that are used. And of course, we we <laughs> we have an ongoing debate on Twitter around that and uh, elsewhere in terms of in policy rent inequality. And of course, what they don't measure is wealth and the impact on wealth um, and wealth inequality. And in particular, I think of, for example, the REITs weren't taxed the real estate investment trusts weren't, ta- or, um, their tax break was kept in place. And that's not measured in our um, Gini coefficient or our measures of inequality as it, to groups who benefited uh, yeah, it, from, you know, who continue to benefit from measures like that.
3: Well, if I could just say this, I mean, I think mm. Louise made a, 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 a good point. Now, this is just a small thing. But of course, we know that poverty is made up of an accumulation of small things. But she made the point <clears throat> that Okay. yes, there's going to be these months off payments, which, you know, all households will get, uh, you know, below a certain income threshold and that um, uh, single parents will get. But the value of the tax credit, for instance, is actually falling. So what you see in bits and pieces here is you get these increases, but there are other things that are falling in value because it's not being inflation indexed. And, of course, notably, the social uh, the social pro, uh, protection rates, but look at the look at some aspects of public services. Now the government made the childcare thing. If it comes through, very positive. The uh, the they're Then now the state is going to take over the purchase of school books. Excellent idea. It's done almost in every other EU country, by the way. Uh, so there was you know the abolition of the A and E charge. Uh, small things along the way. But what's, again, buried in, buried in the appendix of you know, a 100-page report that's released on Budget Day is the fact that, in real terms, expenditure on public services is going to fall next year and the following year. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, yes, it's great that we're getting these things, but what other areas of public services are going to be cut? And they're not cut. Like The minister doesn't stand up and say, I'm reducing the funding. They're just not increasing it, which means the value of that funding falls. It deteriorates. So we get this kind of, you know, it's like going to the carnival and, you know, one of those shell games, you know, where's the ball under which shell is it? It's going to be very difficult to disentangle Mm -hmm. that. But we have to do that over the next few weeks.
1: Yeah. And and also, of course, you know, I'm struck there by what you say about um, the question of, you know, that reduction public investment, because, you know, people are telling me. Um, And we know that, you know, waiting lists, you know, could, for example, waiting lists for things like speech and language, therapy for, you know, children with additional needs, disability services, you know, massive issues with access to services, the public sector. um, And of course, ongoing around that. Um, Trisha, I just come to you on that question of inequality in the budget. What's your analysis of it?
2: Yeah, I suppose, um, as Michael pointed out. There's no doubt that poor people and poor households will be left behind if wage growth um, uh, exceeds what the social welfare increases will be. So the gap between those on higher incomes and those on lower incomes will grow. At the same time, you're going to see an increase in deprivation because the social welfare increases have not kept pace with inflation, which means people are going to have to cut back um, on essentials more, go without essentials more regularly. And that's what we're predicting, unfortunately. And with the, the, analysis that is provided you know the the one that was published by the department of finance it seems i don't know how useful it is if you haven't indexed the distributional impact of the budget changes against inflation for next year it's essentially meaningless yeah. in terms of what it actually the impact is and also expressing it in terms of percentage increases what the measures actually mean if your if your starting income is so low of course, the percentage increase is going to look quite good compared to yeah. someone on a higher income who has a percentage yep. increase um, in their income as well. So it's it's that type of analysis doesn't tell us anything. It's optics to make it look like it was pro- progressive budget, where all the signals uh, are pointing to to a regressive one overall. When you strip out those lump sum payments, which would be gone by Christmas.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for that, Tricia. Um, Louise, just to come to you um, and. Uh, the question of homelessness and housing, um, we really saw, you know, my analysis, you know, an absolute absence of vision, ambition, funding that should have been there. Um, and basic things like, as we mentioned already, the HAP limits not increased um, no major, no significant increase at all in terms of investment in building social and affordable housing um and issues that um as i said uh Mike Rose, or and maybe you can um talk a little bit more about these in terms of homelessness the absence of a clear uh, allocation to preventing homelessness and no no ban on evictions and um, what's what's your in terms of analysis from focus ireland
4: for focus ireland we had our team meeting today and we're again again extremely disappointed with it um we know that there's a, over a thousand people with notices of termination, um, and because landlords are exiting the market, so it's not even going to be easy for them to find new tenancies. We know these people are sitting there. We also know that there are not enough emergency accommodation. We're at a real, we we we're at, we can see what's going coming down the line. We're at a real risk of people um, not having an emergency accommodate not only are they not going to find a new tenancy but they're not even going to be able to access emergency accommodation we knew this was coming we asked for urgent um support and attention and it was a controversial move that we asked for something to stem the flow of landlords Exiting the market that hasn't happened, and actually, in fact, you know, it was touted even as as cl- clone as, as late as last week that it would happen, and it didn't happen. And it, in what that has done is angered landlords who are now saying, Do "You know what? We'll just leave the market," and that is a scary place. Like. You know, I'm not in the position to be standing here defending landlords. I'm the last person in the world to do that. But I am in the position of standing here defending people who are at risk of getting a notice of termination and not having new tenants. They're moving out. First-time buyers are going to move into those properties, which is good for first-time buyers. But the reality is people in emergency accommodation are going to stay in emergency accommodation because we don't have the tenancies. If those tenants, if those properties that are currently Rent it out. Go to first-time buyers. Those first-time buyers were never going to be at risk of homelessness. There's a huge increase going to coming down the line for emergency accommodation, and um, homelessness. I suppose the one positive thing that was slightly positive thing in was the vacancy home vacancy tax. However, it's self-declared. It's going to be very limited, and there is also that 30-day limit. I mean, all you need to do is give relatives your own. Your whole, that property for two weeks each and, you know, they get over that. So th- there's so many loopholes in with that. We're not sure that's going to really make any significant difference. So overall, very disappointing. We can see what's coming down the line. You know, I hate to use the, you know, the very well rehearsed line of a tsunami of evictions and a tsunami of homelessness. But it's hard to see how that's not going to happen. And it's hard to see why nothing happened to stem it. When we. it's predictable, we know it's coming and nothing really imaginative was done in the budget to, to, to prevent that yeah. and of course as Tricia was talking and uh, and and Mike uh, and Michael you know there is this increase in poverty and inequality which obviously is also going to stem it I mean at the moment there is um, there's almost I think almost 3,000 people on in HAP who are in arrears you know that's because of poverty and that's going to increase
1: yeah yeah no, no it is very very extremely worrying and it's extremely frustrating to see the measures that could have been brought in and still should be, I really do um, think that that ban on evictions, um, even for a six-month period, would be a very, very important and necessary step. Yeah, given our, that scale.
4: our position would be in that role is that we want a moratorium for a, a reason. Like It can't be just a moratorium to build up tenancies, but we need to take that. If there was a ban on evictions, that we could kind of stem that, hold it on together and have a task force, an action plan and ways that we can... We can action that, that people will not end up in homelessness. So we would welcome it, but with a reason for it to go on.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. In terms of intervention and Yeah, prevention. We, we, we don't just that. want an
4: eviction like what happened during lockdown, it was necessary, but we know that it just was like a dam building up. Mm. Um, So we need a solution at the end of it. We can't just have that dam building up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Michael, I don't know if you want to give your analysis in terms of th- those measures and if you want to respond around any of those.
3: Well, first off, um, it's been a while since I've kind of looked into the housing statistics produced by the government uh, in terms of build and rent and uh, all the things, uh, you know, trying to show how they're building up the social housing stock and all that. I've given up because there's people like you, Rory, uh, who wade in there fearlessly to find it out because I just find it stunning uh, uh, that it is still so difficult to uh, uh get a real grasp of uh the record of the government by looking at their own data. It's mm. very you know I don't know if you find that Rory but, No it is you know, it is
1: it is difficult yes. You know
3: and I've spoken to others who <laughs> work in this, who work in this who, who are dedicated uh you know academics working in this area and they they find it difficult uh, uh to do that. I would just say this in terms of the private rented sector because that is a critical constituency uh so uh, insofar as these are people who you know may well be working, but uh, uh they are um uh, the cost is so high that they cannot fully participate in the consumer economy. So uh what is going to happen is that uh, uh, what is gonna happen is with any attempt to provide justice to tenants, that will only further constrain supply. That doesn't mean that you don't pursue justice for tenants, but unless you have an answer to, uh, and that can only come through the public sector, unless you have an answer to increase the supply of apartments, the problem is as long as you treat the housing as a commodity, the market will find some way to bite you. And what we're seeing is, uh you know landlords leaving the market but there is no there's not enough uh coming in to make that to to actually you know maintain the level of housing that is available uh so that it needs a structural change uh so that we can pursue justice for tenants but at the same time ensure that there is a growing supply of affordable uh and I would argue cost rental uh uh housing that is made made available, but that can only come through substantial public sector intervention.
1: Yeah, and I, I do think that, um, and I've made this point, that there needs to be the reason why if you put removed, for example, even on a temporary year basis or two year basis, the ability to evict a tenant on sale of a property, that it would mean that landlords could still sell, but that the tenant would be kept in place. And it seems an obvious measure um, to put in place that would, you know, mean that if landlords are leaving, it's not this dramatic situation whereby, um, you know, you have people pushed into homelessness. So I think that, again, the question brings up the wider question of the right to housing and the need for that. Michael, just the last question. Um, The the issue of the politics of all of this and what it means, um, there was a very large protest um, the cost of living coalition organized a very successful protest. a lot of di- uh, different groups from civil society and political parties on the, on the streets and citizens and um, individuals highlighting um, the need for real action And where where do you think this is going? Um, in terms of that the government you know clearly didn't do sufficiently in this budget, um, but are going to remain under significant pressure. Do you see civil society continuing? Um, it needs to do so, and we need obviously it on housing as well. Um, what's your own view?
3: <clears throat> My own view is that uh, <clears throat> coming into the uh, well, we are in the uh, we'll be coming into the to the last quarter of the year, where a lot of these once off measures uh, uh, will come on stream. So this 1.2 billion euros worth of subsidies will come on stream, that will relieve the pressure for the government. You know, for you know that period. Yeah. And possibly into January. I think when you really when people uh, start feeling the the uh, uh, start feeling the impact of uh, whether it's a social protection rate or whether it's a low wage or whatever, when they find that once again, because uh, inflation is outstripping all of this. And, you know, that 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 uh, once off measures have already been consumed. uh then I think the pressure will mount again. Uh, but that might not happen till after the new year uh, and when people start feeling the full brunt of what's going to be another high inflation uh, year coming uh, ahead of us. So therefore, I do think that um, uh, civil society groups especially should be sitting down, trade unions and civil society groups, and saying, okay, what are the two or three things that we can, you know, campaign for to relieve this pressure now that might be a a supplementary budget in terms of social protection rates it might be a supplementary increase to the minimum wage uh phasing it upwards uh there could be other measures for instance you know very practical measures like the one you just mentioned that yes a landlord can sell the house but the tenant stays in situ for a year or whatever it is to you know so as to give them proper time uh, to find an alternative accommodation, of course, if that's possible, uh, depending on the area that they're in. So uh, I think you know, starting in the new year, uh, trade unions and civil society, uh, other of civil society groups should start uh, should sit down and say, okay, what are the two or three things uh, uh, that can make an impact? No sense in making a list of fifteen. Uh, two or three things will make an impact. Agree that. Go to the other. Go to the political parties. Say this is our program. Will you support it? And then mount a campaign, uh, 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 regard, uh around those two or three demands. Yeah. I,
1: yeah,
3: I think that could be constructive. It's certainly doable, and I think that you know, I mean, I know trade unions will be looking for an increase in the minimum wage. Uh, civil society groups campaigning around issues of poverty and social exclusion will be looking for uh, uh, um, uh you know, the increase in social protection payments. And I think that, you know, housing groups will be looking for very practical measures that can uh, protect tenants from uh, the the worst excesses of the market, uh, uh, you know, even on a temporary basis. So it's quite possible to put that coalition together.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, And it's going to be needed to continue To highlight this, this uh, multiple, multiple forms, multiple crisis that people are facing and that it's not um, just left um, to the next budget a year ago to a year from now. um, Absolutely. If we have to wait 12
3: months to solve this thing. Oh, geez.
1: No. How many um, are going to
3: fall by the wayside?
1: yeah no no but i know there's a lot of energy out there and a lot of uh, commitment and frustration as well and desire to do something and i think it was interesting in the context of you know covid had a massive impact understandably on mobilization and people public public gatherings and that was the first real proper um post covid opportunity and we saw thousands um you know come out in terms of that protest and i think it's, it shows that the appetite is there for people to take action and i think as well that particularly on the housing um Issue as well. I think there's an opportunity now to to mobilise, and I know groups groups like katu um, and raise the roof are, are doing that and looking at doing that. Um, and indeed, my own book is coming out, being published tomorrow, Thursday, which um I think should uh, create a bit of momentum as well in its own way. Um, and there's a petition as part of that people can sign, but they can check that out. GAFs <laughs> is out um tomorrow. I uh, was assuming this podcast goes out. And,
3: the, and you got a uh, blurb from Brendan O'Connor, I see. I did,
1: yeah. Brendan had me on and he gave me a good length of time, uh, well over half an hour. And people can listen back to that on the RT player, uh, make their own views on, on his approach. But um, yeah, he listened to me. And um, there was definitely, it was interesting, actually, the the proposal for that I was, I've been making for a public construction company, which drives all the... Uh, the finance bros and uh, um, etc. nuts and a uh, lot money in the construction industry. Well, in terms of ownership anyway, lots of workers want to work with a public company where they have decent jobs um, and decent guaranteed pay. was uh, picked up by a public health um, senior person within the HSC today in the Irish Examiner who was recommending it as well, um, which is great to see because, of course, the, house, the link between housing and health is um central but i do think that um there's practical ideas lots of practical ideas like that in the book that hopefully will get more public support um so yeah that's it listen michael thanks so much and to the others louise and uh, tricia who left us unfortunately off to their their meetings and their work but thanks so much michael for coming back again and giving that analysis thank you and uh, listeners, a reminder that um, we are a podcast produced by Tony Groves, uh, Torch Shack Media, um, completely reliant on you, our listeners. And thank you so much to all the listeners who are patrons, who are supporters. And we have had a significant increase in our listenership the last couple of weeks, which has been great to see a lot of interest in the budget podcasts and the other podcasts that we've been covering you can listen back to those um, and please do share it around on social media as well Instagram, Twitter, let people know that you're listening and um, you can just share the link via um, Spotify or whatever wherever you're listening share it around let people know. Um, and yeah, thanks so
3: much and we will talk to you all very very soon.